For nearly 25 years, Roseman University has challenged the status quo, transforming education and graduating competent and compassionate healthcare professionals. Roseman University is reimagining healthcare, healing patients and their families, solving health challenges by embracing discovery, and building programs that provide hope and improve health. Click the banner for more on Roseman's healthcare programs in nursing, pharmacy, graduate studies, and dental medicine, or see roseman.edu. This episode is brought to you by Stitch Fix. Love trying new fashion trends, but find it all a little intimidating? With Stitch Fix, refreshing your wardrobe has never been easier. They figured out the new 2024 trends, so you don't have to. Just give your stylist your size, style, and budget preferences, and they'll send you five just-for-you pieces, plus outfit recommendations and pro styling advice. Refresh your 2024 wardrobe now and get started today at stitchfix.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places. It's all here. I'm Nancy Sarnoff, real estate reporter with the Houston Chronicle, and I am here today with Rebecca Schutz. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Doing great. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Welcome back. Thank you. Let's see. Our last episode that you led so beautifully on Tiny Homes came out after the new year, but we actually recorded it before. So I wanted to know what you did to celebrate 2020. How did you ring in the new year? So I rang in the new year by going to Buffalo Bayou Brewery with some of the people from the newspaper, including okay. the breaking news team. Nice. We're like, if a stray bullet hits one of us, <laughs> we'll have the reporters right here to report on it. <laughs> but it's a, it's great because they have that rooftop and you can see everyone yes. firing um, the fireworks from all around and there's hardly anyone there. I was afraid to go to a commercial establishment on New Year's Eve because uh-huh. I think of everything being more expensive, everything being way crowded, but it was very chill. How about you? Well, as I believe you know, I was on a cruise ship. But I don't know what you were doing on the cruise ship. Okay, that's true. So I was on a large cruise ship and for New Year's Eve, we went to dinner on the cruise ship in the fancy dining room and it was formal night. So we all got dressed up. My nephew wore a tuxedo. Oh my goodness. It was the cutest thing. He's 15. It was adorable. And so we had dinner and it got silly pretty quickly because they had all the tables decorated with noisemakers and balloons and hats and the noisemakers, there were just so many of them, and everyone was in such a good mood that everyone from each big table started blowing them. And it became like a competition who could make the loudest noises with their noisemakers. And this one table near ours, they had made like this contraption with their noisemaker by taking the menu and like rolling it up and kind of sticking it in. Making and, like a bullhorn? Exactly. Oh. It sounded. Have you ever seen the the screaming goat videos? Can you um? Can you remind me? Can you act it out? How does the screaming goat sound? I I can't do it for you. I, for our listeners, <laughs> Nancy, please just go to just Google screaming goats. People, you'll you'll <laughs> find you'll find it. And 
I think most people know about it. I'm a little surprised, as since you're a millennial, that you haven't you haven't seen the. I haven't goats. spent enough time on the internet, okay. but <laughs> I would really love you to just give it your best go. Just imagine a really loud noisemaker. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, Got it. but it's Got it. it's really funny. Anyway, that's what it sounded like. So they were like this whole ridiculous cruise ship dining room of people in tuxedos trying to out out blow each other. And it was kind of funny and kind of silly. And it was honestly a high point of my trip. So anyway, that's what I did to ring in the new year. And but speaking of New Year's, I have to say one other thing. It's awards season. Yes, it is. And that means the Loopy Awards are here. Yeah, we need to get some better sound effects. But for those who do not know, (laughs) for those of you who do not know about the Loopies, this is where Looped In recognizes everything preposterous about Houston real estate. And we ask you, our listeners, to vote in a bunch of categories. Well, there are not that many. So this will not take long. But those categories include, some of them include trendiest development trend, saddest demise, and we have some new categories this year, which are best subdivision plat name and neighborhood with the highest gentrification threat. So please, listeners, head over to my Facebook page or yours probably too. You it's on my Facebook page. Too. And Twitter. I am at Nsarnoff to get the poll and vote and please pass it along. Send it to your friends. We want to have a really good turnout this year. So with that said, let's get to our guest. Today, Rebecca and I are joined by someone who we've been talking to for our real estate stories for a while now, but this is the first time he has come on Looped In. His name is Kyle Shelton, and Kyle is the Deputy Director of the Kinder Institute for Urban Research at Rice University. The Kinder Institute is a think tank slash high-level research organization, and Kyle has been involved in numerous studies relating to housing, gentrification, affordability, and I'm sure many more. So, Kyle Shelton, finally, welcome to Looped It. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So what did you do for New Year's? We also had a fancy party, except it was just with our family uh, of four and a set of grandparents. There were many sparkly things involved uh, (laughs) with a five-year-old and a three-year-old. I think we probably could have called it a formal night, except it was very large purple sequined hats and many noise makers as well. And it happened in Alpine, Texas, not not on a cruise boat. Okay. It was still fun. Okay. Well, that sounds... That does sound fun. And we celebrated it, I believe, 8.45 p.m. I was going to ask, you made it to midnight. (laughs) The adults mostly did. Uh, Okay. Well, wow. We forced my little daughter to stay up till midnight, (laughs) and she was mad. (laughs) (laughs) Great way to ring in the new year. (laughs) On a boat. It was was quite a scene. Um, Anyway, enough of that. Uh, Kyle, the reason we asked you to come on the show today is because you just – Release this new research on Houston's development and land use patterns as they relate to transit hubs. So you looked at what's been happening around primarily light rail stations, park and rides, and transit centers. And so after reading through your research, I 
I I have sort of a takeaway from it that I want to run by you. Sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but here's what here's what I thought. If you are a low income or moderate income Houstonian who lives near say one of these new light rail stops for example, your days in that neighborhood are probably numbered. Is that I think that's a part of <laughs> of what we found, right? And yeah. and I think an important caveat with all of this is that the the transit is one piece of this equation, right? True. And and as you said, the report is sort of a dynamic between the land use and the transit. And I was just describing it as sort of the the transit line is the dependent variable here, right? It's it's staying same, it's staying the same, and we're looking at how other pieces are interacting with it, um, and what that particularly means for land use. And we started this. This is the second in a series of three reports that the Kinder Institute's producing around the effects of gentrification, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started with the first one in December of 2018 that looked at the gentrification patterns and also used uh, an analysis of statistics here in Houston to identify which areas are most susceptible to gentrification in the future. Um it meshes very closely with the recent study from the Fed uh, in Dallas that identified Houston as a as the most quickly gentrifying uh, right. community of the big cities in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one really kind of set out the baseline of where are communities most in in danger of changing quickly. Um, and then this this piece added the transit dynamic to it to look at is there a way to understand how transit may or may not be influencing patterns of neighborhood change Mm -hmm. um, and whether or not it's accelerating it, whether or not that change is focusing around the transit investments. Um, And then we'll be looking at a third one in the coming months that is basically what does the actual built built environment, how does it actually respond to those patterns? What's what's actually happening with the homes and the structures? So like, you know, we have sort of the assumption that most gentrification is the construction of townhomes and the loss of single family. Does that sort of typological change look the same in every neighborhood? So we'll be looking at that as well. So this is the middle of the three. Okay. Um, and yeah, I think the, the overarching finding is that from that first report, everything basically east of downtown, is incredibly susceptible to relatively quick change. That's not particularly new. I think whether, you know, if you look like at a community like the Third Ward, they've been struggling with that mm-hmm. uh, quick transition uh, for a decade or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly many of the areas, the, the, the nexus we have in this report are those areas that we identified in the very first susceptibility analysis that are adjacent to transit are the ones that are changing the most and are probably setting up the most for potential displacement. And those areas are, aside from the East End? Yeah, so it, the the places that are the, the, the majority of the transit-adjacent areas, uh, which is how we kind of classify it in this report, uh, that are also susceptible to gentrification are along the light rail lines. There okay. are several spread throughout the county. Our first analysis looked at the whole county. Um, but when you overlay light rail stops, transit centers, and park and ride lots. The majority of where there's the overlap between highly susceptible to gentrification in the future Mm -hmm. and land use change are 
along the uh, along the light rails and near the stations and particularly on the north side of the red line so the near north side into north line mm-hmm. um, along the green and purple line so the the majority of the east end the second ward um, towards magnolia park um, and down the third ward down to ost south union and there's sort of a, a smattering around some of the transit centers as well um, we look at census block groups and so mm-hmm. there are some census block groups um, you know near transit centers that are are susceptible. Um, but I think for the majority of folks, kind of much of the report focuses on the light rail and, and sort of its impacts on those on those neighborhoods. Well, I thought this was interesting because of the history of the transit rail. You've mm-hmm. written about that. And was this always like a consequence people were worried about? Yeah, I mean, and and part of what we try to do with the report is make it clear that because a lot of the other research the institute has done is about the importance and the the mm-hmm. critical nature of transit to access to opportunity, access to education for all sorts of Houstonians, right? Like, this is not a report that says transit is bad because it leads to redevelopment. It's it's trying to understand the dynamic between those two. Um, but yeah, I think many times in transportation debates generally, there's often a concern about. Uh, particularly in established neighborhoods, often low-income and non-white neighborhoods, most vocally, but really, in in my book, I look at you know wealthy neighborhood white neighborhoods out by Memorial Bend fighting against Beltway Eight. Like any time a major transportation uh, avenue is coming through, there's a concern of how does it change the neighborhood? Right? Does it does it displace me? Does it bring new neighbors in who I may not want to live by? Does it change our land value or our home values? You know, is it gonna bring in a bunch of businesses we don't want. And I think for Houston, that's particularly amplified because of the reality that in a lot of neighborhoods uh, that are having these big projects done, they may not have deed restrictions in force or they may not have some of the other land use protections that many neighborhoods have. And so that that's when we see neighborhood change in Houston, the places where it can quite literally change overnight are are often these neighborhoods that we're talking about that are vulnerable to gentrification that don't have the land protections in place, whether it's a minimum lot size or even for what it does provide, the historic designations, things like that. And so people do often express concern of, okay, you're going to bring this investment in and there's really no guarantee that I as a long-term resident get to benefit from that. And so I think that's that's really the tension on just about any level of investment, right? Whether it's a, a brand new park with a, millions of dollars of investment, you know, you think of the Bayou projects and all of what that's doing to change neighborhoods. I know that's been a part of all those conversations. How do you bring amenities and services and really needed development into communities that haven't had them for decades, if ever, at least not on a meaningful scale to other neighborhoods mm-hmm. in Houston? while making sure the folks who live there get to use them and benefit from them, right? Like, it is it it is critical to have economic development, but if the economic development we have comes with displacement or comes with lack of access for the folks who were trying to have that economic development benefit, then it's sort of adding to our bottom line without helping those who need it most. And so I think, yes, that's a, that's a concern for lots of people to transit, and it was a concern not just with the light rail lines, but really any new big project that Metro has done, really going back to its early history, there has always been a voice of concern almost every single time of like, how how will we contend with this? How will this change our neighborhood? Um, and it's the same with major textile projects as well. Talking about the history of rail in Houston, mm-hmm. as a longtime Houstonian, I saw the rail line go up. I was I reported on, you know, a lot of it. 
And in Midtown, for example, you know, the first stretch of rail from downtown to essentially the Astro complex, Astrodome mm-hmm. complex, mm-hmm. a lot of the land around it just sat vacant for many, many years. And you hear about how this new investment is going to create economic development and People are going to go in and build mixed-use projects, apartments over retail and restaurant. And this is apart from the whole conversation around affordability Mm -hmm. and how that changes. But none of that really happened initially. And it became a place where investors just decided that they would speculate. Mm -hmm. And in the city, as an investor, you can pretty much do whatever you want. You can buy a piece of land. You can tear down what's on on the land, and just sit on it. Mm -hmm. But I guess I just would like to hear your take on that, on how that happened, you know, historically on that first line. And then do you see that happening with these new lines or what's happening now? Yeah. So I think there's a a couple of things there. So Again, often in those debates around particularly fixed line transit, like light rail or whatever other type of mode it's going to be, even maybe interestingly BRTs with the new plan, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that happens because those are more uh, in a fixed place, right? Like bus lines don't move all that often, but are obviously far more flexible than mm-hmm. a, a rail in the ground. The, Can you say what that is just for yeah. our listeners? Yeah. Uh, what BRT is? Mm-hmm. Uh, bus rapid transit. So the first one will be opening mm-hmm. sometime in 2020 over here by the Galleria, not far from where we are today. Along Post Oak Boulevard uh-huh. that is already surrounded by very high-end development. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you, you brought the transit to the development. Yeah. Made it, made it TOD. Yeah. And then in many of the cases where there's a referendum about a particular type of transit or transit line, it's mm-hmm. often used as a justification to say this will spur Mm-hmm. development. Absolutely. That obviously separates it from its most critical function, which is transit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's really important to sort of differentiate that and say the goal of, I, I would argue, the goal of most transit lines should be actually to provide good transit and to help create a system that is moving the most people as efficiently and as effectively as possible to all sorts of uses, right? That is a very um, good point that I think as a real estate port- reporter, it kind of gets lost sometimes. Yeah. Well, and but- it makes sense because what actually kind of remains the most interesting about a line once it is in is what's happening around it, right? Like once the once the transit system is there and is functioning and is being used, it becomes a little less newsworthy, right? Or, or right. it's harder to sort of notice what changes about the line. And it's it makes sense that we're more focused on what's happening along it. So with the red line... I think you described it perfectly well. I think Midtown, when it opened in 2004, certainly was not ready to support that level of investment that people sort of assumed would come. And it took a number of years, both for uh, sort of the second iteration of developers Mm -hmm. to buy the land from the the longtime owners or speculators um, with the intent of building buildings. But I think it also took some of the changing dynamics that we see in real estate in Houston and Mm -hmm. particularly in downtown, right? So certainly having the draw of the downtown living initiative and helping helping bring more residents into downtown, I think benefits Midtown, right? Because more and more people are are living in new buildings downtown, then Midtown becomes more attractive. And just in the five years that I've actively lived in Houston, Mm -hmm. I'd say 10 to 15 large apartment buildings have opened in Midtown, if not more. The Downtown Uh, Living Initiative for 
those who might not know about it, is a was was basically a city incentive mm-hmm. program to developers, gave them tax breaks or tax credits to build new units. And so a bunch of luxury apartments went up basically. Yeah. And it didn't it didn't spill into Midtown, I don't believe, but what it helps do is sort of bring a population who then need all these other amenities, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you think just in the last few years last few months, just along Elgin and the uh, light rail line, there's the new Whole Foods, there's multiple new apartment buildings. All of that takes time, right? I think yes. that's, yes. It, I, I don't think it's quite fair. And actually, there have been a couple of studies from Texas Southern that have shown that the economic development along the lines is growing. Like there's right. more and more and it is clearly focused on the transit lines. It, it just takes time, right? Uh-huh. Like even though I already said in this in this discussion <laughs> that things in Houston happen overnight, um, particularly commercial and big multifamily take can take years, right? You have to yeah. find the right site. You have to make sure there's enough demand. The single family turnover and sort of the retrofitting of older businesses and things like that, that can happen more quickly. Mm-hmm. But the kind of the expectation for Midtown of suddenly there will be 200 apartment buildings as soon as the light rail opens that just I, I can't think of a single example where it's quite that rapid right so in general you know it's about i'd say a decade after uh-huh. not even well even less than that right most of the midtown redevelopment started to kick off in the early 2010 yeah. 2011 you started to see more of the bigger buildings opening and yeah. that, i think that trend has just continued in terms of what's happening north and east on the green and purple and nor the second segment of the red line, those mm-hmm. were, I think the dynamic along those lines is is really interesting because Midtown, to a great extent, when the when the red line opened first, wasn't it wasn't abandoned, mm-hmm. but it has a it had many more vacant buildings, underutilized buildings, former commercial, former office, right. and spaces that were quite ready to be yeah. redeveloped. It wasn't like this thriving existing right. neighborhood, right? Whereas really all three of the other segments of the light rail lines go through very historically established and long running, predominantly residential communities, Uh right? The East End in particular is interesting because there's so much industrial that is is and has started to be retrofitted Mm -hmm. and started to respond to to uh, development pressures. But the the changing dynamics in those neighborhoods as compared to Midtown have manifested really differently, right? So what this study shows, and the and the timeline for this is 2010 to 2016, so we don't capture the most recent years. So my guess is that just based on my own eyes and right. anecdotal is that it's all picked up. But I would imagine the trends we highlight are very similar. Mm-hmm. So what you see in a lot of – in those three neighborhoods that I just mentioned, East End, Third Ward, and uh, Second Ward near Northside – uh, or not second word, sorry, near north side, um, are a lot of those traditional single family bungalows are, though that is where the replatting is happening and where a single family home is being bought, the property is being split and either townhomes or either usually just taller homes are being <laughs> built in those places. And so that's one of the trends that we found in this report. In a lot of the areas that we identified as susceptible to gentrification, the types of land use change you're seeing are going from single family to either undeveloped, so like the house gets demolished and then it's sitting in yes. the year that we looked at it, um, or from single family to new records, which basically is the new plat, right? So okay. if you if I owned a single family home in near north side and sold it to you, mm-hmm. you as the developer then replat it into usually two, but depending on the lot, you could 
do eight, right? You could eight, you could do yeah, one of the eight, new, the eight, eight or... new townhomes. And so that's what we're seeing in a lot of the sort of susceptible to gentrification, lots of lots of redevelopment pressure neighborhoods along along the light rail lines. That's what we highlight in this report is that much of that, much of the existing units in 2010 transitioned from single family to either new lots or undeveloped. So it's basically setting the stage for continued redevelopment in all of those areas. One of the findings I think is really fascinating from yeah. this, what we what we compare throughout it is what we call vulnerable transit adjacent development to non-vulnerable transit adjacent development. And that's based on that 2018 study we did about gentrification. Mm-hmm. So non, non-vulnerable transit adjacent places are communities usually of higher wealth or communities that have sort of already experienced a neighborhood change, right? So if they were traditionally low-income um, and non-white, they transitioned in the 90s or the early thousands. Um, what we're seeing here is that those communities that aren't susceptible to further gentrification, right, the the loss of further low-income residents or non-white residents, the rising rates of education, those are all the, the factors that we when we did our report, tied to what you could call the dynamic of gentrification. Those areas actually just became more residential when you look at the concentration change. So a lot of there are also a ton of undeveloped lots. There's a lot of demolition. There's a lot of rebuilding. But almost almost entirely, it becomes more residential. So in, in effect, predominantly wealthier, predominantly whiter areas near transit in Houston are becoming more homogeneous mm-hmm. and more residential. Mm-hmm. And where you're seeing most of the change in terms of commercial and in terms of uh, new multifamily um, and also new single family um, are in those gentrifiable uh, and and vulnerable areas. So some of the communities we've already talked about, which right. which again, makes it kind of even more unsettling in terms of a process for those long-term residents. Mm-hmm. And is that just because they can get more land in a, one of these vulnerable areas in order to make a commercial use? Yeah, I would guess so, because like an, a good example of a non-vulnerable transit-adjacent area is Montrose, right? Like, mm-hmm. Yes, you can't buy as much property for the same price. Like if you want to, if you are a multifamily developer who wants a close-end neighborhood, it'd be much easier for you now, even now, you could more cheaply buy land in Second Ward than you could in Montrose. Right? Okay. Um, so I, I certainly think that's a, a contributing factor. Um, but then also it goes back to what I mentioned a while ago, which was the different communities that have – Houston has many land use regulations, right? And mm-hmm. um, it does, in fact, make development difficult if you have to encounter minimum lot sizes or deed restrictions. Right. And a lot of the communities where you see – you know, I'll, I'll use my Oak Forest example again – I don't know 100% sure that it's deed restricted, but I'd be very surprised if it wasn't. Even though you can tear down a home and put up a new home, it is a particular type of home, right? Like you couldn't plop a 200-unit multifamily property in the middle of a deed-restricted community where the restrictions are enforced. You can if there's not enough resources or uh even restrictions in place, right? Like a, a lot of the research we've done at the Institute, a lot of the challenges in terms of the inequality of Houston's land use codes are if you don't have resources or the ability to resist development, that's when that change can happen overnight. And so in a lot of the communities that we're looking at in this report, the restrictions have lapsed or they're inconsistent and there might be minimum lot sizes on one block but not the next, or it's an industrial zone. And Mm -hmm. so people come in, buy up the former industrial sites and turn those into an entirely different 
property. And I think the East End, again, is probably the best example of that, mm-hmm. right? You can think of any number of retrofits of old industrial and commercial properties, um, also the tearing down of those and building of new structures, like the East Downtown area obviously has seen a lot of that as well. Um, and yeah, I think in the end, it comes back to sort of what's available and and what's particularly for Houston, what's sort of easy to get and redevelop. And mm-hmm. I think all of those neighborhoods kind of fit that bill in ways that the predominantly wealthier single-family communities don't because it's a lot harder. Even even if it's not like the wealthiest of neighborhoods, mm-hmm. they often have restrictions. Mm-hmm. And it's just, as a developer, much more difficult to come in and say, hey, I'm going to try to build this multifamily property there. The conflict of this report, I would say, is how do you pair a transit investment then with a housing investment to ensure the folks who you want to continue to serve can live next to that line, right? So, right. for example, the city of Houston has has for years prioritized it with its funding projects that are near transit. And that's becoming a top, a, a more pressing priority. Um, and so thinking about, okay, Metro invested X billions of dollars in these systems. We're going to pair all of that investment with the following types of housing. Mm-hmm. Those are the types of ways where you, you don't, you're not saying we're going to stop all development along transit lines. You're saying we're going to be as strategic as possible and make sure we're going to put you know, if we're if we're building a hundred unit apartment building for folks who make eighty percent of the area median income, put it right next to the transit line so mm-hmm. that they can use the transit line, mm-hmm. and then you're guaranteed to have a hundred units who are available that are available to folks with low income. Like, you won't be displacing those folks; they'll have the opportunity to live there. Um, and so, we also have the opportunity to use policy in that way and and be proactive about it. But it requires many more actors than just Metro. Like Metro can't can't do it by itself right like they have traditionally not built housing they have traditionally um built the lines and then it's it's the the broader context that has to do that as well part of what this report and these questions raise Mm -hmm. is how do you meaningfully make all these sorts of investments and do it well right and and make sure when you when you're starting with transit how are, are you making the system that you want to serve to to reach the goals that you want right so if it's about serving low-income transit-dependent folks? Like, are you putting that in places that they need it? And are you coupling that with your public partners and your private partners to build housing and other things that those households need to stay there and Mm -hmm. continue to use the transit? Mm -hmm. And if you're not, then you're clearly not achieving your goal, right? Mm -hmm. And so it also, but it also shows how quickly complicated it can become because Mm -hmm. there are Many non-white lower-income communities who have, not just in Houston, across the country, mm-hmm. said, we don't want any more just low-income housing. We don't want any more public housing. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I think if you take a step back and think of sort of the the ideal situation of everybody having access to multiple modes of transit near their home that connect them to multiple things, the necessary next step is all types of housing in as many parts of the city as you can get, right? So that you're not, whether it's a luxury set of luxury apartments or predominantly subsidized housing, you concentrations of one kind of that doesn't help a cross section of the city, right? And so mm-hmm. when you think about how do you what would what would the ideal mix of development around a really big transit investment look mm-hmm. like, I think it has to be something where you're trying to put policies in place where you enable long-term residents to stay if they want to stay and 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 have that option, um, but also attracting new people in to use that transit and to use the amenities that are coming with it. And that's going to mean that you're going to have, you, you have, some of these transitions have to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're not going to 
you're not going to stop the process of redevelopment, but you, you as a, I think as a city and as a transit agency, you have to kind of work together with your development community to say, what are the things we want to bring in here? And then what do those pieces look like? And how do we do it in a way that brings the neighborhood di- most directly affected along with the process so they're aware of what's happening and have input in yeah. that process? Okay. What are examples of those policies you've seen maybe either in Houston or in other cities? Yeah, so I think there's there's kind of a this is this is a challenge in just about every big city, right? And I don't I don't think anyone has really found a silver bullet of this is the best way to stop gentrification and displacement. And even a really important caveat is even understanding what displacement is happening is really difficult. And I, I actually think it's really important to forward that because um, it's really easy to say displacement is happening. I absolutely think it is because we we know anecdotally families and long-term residents who have left a lot of these communities. But actually putting the same kind of fine-grained data on that is a lot more difficult because it requires a multi-year commitment to like – Kyle lives at this house. Oh, Kyle doesn't live at this house anymore. Where did Kyle move? Hey, neighbor, do you know where Kyle moved? You don't? Okay, oh, shoot. I don't know how we're going to find where he went or why he left. And so having an understanding of like, did I move and did all of my neighbors move because my prices went up or because I was drawn to go to the suburbs for a different reason? Like I wanted different schools for my kids or I went to move with family. So displacement can be really tricky just just to track in general. Mm-hmm. Um but it is, it's something that I think we need to get a better handle on so that we can shape some of these policies. So the types of policies that people have put in place in many other cities and that Houston has some of and that we could certainly consider pursuing more are things like having additional broader tax abatements for longer term residents, lower income residents. Right now, those are available mostly for uh, seniors and for veterans. Um, you could consider there are ways to to kind of craft abatements that could be uh, for longer term, ex- explicitly for longer term homeowners, or um, you could potentially shape things for renters that allow for some some modicum of control over rents. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a blanket like we've installed rent control, but you know you can policy is lovely. You can be as creative as you want to be. You just have to figure <laughs> out how to do it, and then. Just the pure supply side of it is uh, there aren't enough affordable homes in Houston and places where people want to live. Um, and we are an incredibly high, an incredibly high percentage of our homes are privately owned. And so they can change hands very quickly and they can be redeveloped really quickly. Um, we did a report with the University of Houston and the flood consortium, uh, the Greater Houston Flood Consortium uh in 2018, and I, I think the number is 87% of multifamily units are privately owned. And so New York's is something like 71 or 72%. So it doesn't seem like all that much, but that's hundreds of thousands of units. Mm-hmm. And when those are publicly controlled units, you can be fairly confident that if I'm a long-term resident, it's not going to turn over and I'm, my rent's not going to go from $700 a month to $1,600 a month. When you're in Houston and nearly all of the multifamily units are owned by private owners at any point they could choose to redo a home or redo a building uh, sell the building and the new the new owner could do something totally different with it so that kind of adds to the instability of things so the more we can do to build projects that are controlled either by public agencies or by mission driven nonprofits or mission driven for profits where the affordability is guaranteed for a longer period of time it just gives it gives residents more stability i think and it helps bring 
uh, more control to the market and helps us address other goals, right? Like if we want to keep people in neighborhoods, you have to have housing there that they can afford. Like there's no, that's the very simple equation. How to get to the housing that they can afford is the more complicated part. And I don't, I, there's not a single solution, right? Because plopping down 1,500 units from the housing authority raises all these hackles from various angles uh, and probably isn't the only solution we should consider, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even even something about thinking of how do you disperse those more meaningfully through a department through through a neighborhood. Um, but that becomes difficult because like we already talked about securing the land, whether it's because of the price or just being able to aggregate enough property to build the projects you want is really mm-hmm. difficult and increasingly so in all these neighborhoods that are the places where we should want folks who need access to jobs and need access to education because they're the places that are so close in and where you don't need to travel two hours to get to mm-hmm. uh, an opportunity. Your job must be really frustrating at times. Like <laughs> you're discovering all these problems and all these issues and watching things change before your eyes and studying them and researching them and and recording them and Luckily, I get to just share with the folks who have to implement right. the findings. Right, um, right. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it can be frustrating, but it's also exciting to be able to say, you know, here are the here are the opportunities, or, right. or here are, here are the clear challenges. Like right. trying to put trying to give understanding to what the actual issue is, rather than say, here's what we perceive it to be. Yeah, uh, and try to get more clarity there. I mean, our our hope is we we call ourselves a think and do tank, right? So we think and then we try to share with right. what the do could be, right? And, yeah. and and then try to share that with officials and try to share that with agencies and residents and say, here are options, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're not going to tell you which is the, the only, they all answer part of the question. Um, you know, we collectively then have to think about what are the ones we pursue. Uh-huh. Um, but it's it's pretty cool to be a part of the, here's the, here's the menu of options. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I have one last question for you. Great. I'm just curious to know what what you would say to this if the Kinder Institute said, okay, we're restructuring everybody and each person is going to be responsible for one neighborhood slash part of Houston, Mm -hmm. part of town. What are you going to pick to study, say, over the next five years? Hmm. What one area would you pick? I don't think this is cheating. But it crosses multiple areas, so it kind of is. But I would pick sort of – I would actually pick the bayou-adjacent communities oh. because I think that's one of the most captivating parts of our region huh. right now yeah. because a lot of really interesting things are happening already, whether it's the park investments and trail investments or just, I mean, the flooding issues, obviously. Like, so much is happening in those areas alongside the bayous that – um trying to understand sort of what those investments mean for different types of neighborhoods. Obviously, um, a place like Braze Bayou cuts through just about every type of neighborhood Houston has. Yeah. Um, and Harris County has, right, yeah. from some of the wealthiest to some of the poorest. Um, and those communities all have different assets and mm-hmm. different challenges and and trying to understand how the different investments and different projects that are taking place in mm-hmm. there are changing them, I think would be really, uh, mm. is really important to watch. Um, and and 
from a transportation angle, I certainly am not alone in thinking this, but I think the bayous are such a huge asset. Albert Pope from the Rice School of Architecture has talked about this for a while of like the bayous could be Houston's next version of a highway system, right? We're <laughs> in a place that's incredibly flat. We've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in a trail system. Um, this is what the Houston Parks Board is doing. Their next version is beyond the bayou. So how do you get people to those trails? Um, you know, not everybody's going to bike commute 17 miles every single day in Houston, but there are people who are already doing that. Um, and we have the opportunity to better connect neighborhoods and, you know, maybe we all start walking to three of our destinations a week where we might not do it before. Um, and I think that's just, that's just such a huge asset and huge opportunity. So. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, such thoughtful answers and a great discussion. Thank you so yeah, much for, for, for chatting with us. And, if you are a regular looped in listener, you will know that we like to give our guests a lightning round. Okay. Uh-huh. It's the oldest trick in the book, but it is it works. It is fun. Okay. Okay. So this is how we do it. I ask one question. Rebecca asks the next. If you're game, you've just got to answer these questions lightning fast. Okay. All right. Do you prefer underpasses or overpasses? Over. Favorite neighborhood to walk in? Montrose. Favorite neighborhood? I've lived in Montrose for five years, also Montrose. (laughs) (laughs) Favorite Houston building? Mm, uh, Pennzoil. Favorite ethnic restaurant? Himalaya. He's good at this. He is. I think you're the best person at this. (laughs) (laughs) Come on the show. Okay. Okay. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Favorite childhood book? Uh, well, this is a bit of a cop-out because it's my favorite for my kids, and it's called The Busiest Street in Town. Uh, and it's all about uh, two old ladies who live across the street from each other who are best friends who uh, remake the busy street in front of them by putting chairs and carpets and ottomans out and playing back, back, backgammon in the middle of the road. So it's, you know, street safety and infrastructure. Uh, That's a perfect that, book. I yeah. know that book. <laughs> I know that book. It's like... What is it? Sundays. uh, What do we do on Sundays um, where we close the streets? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I'm actually I'm planning on going to my uh, five year old's preschool class. Sunday streets. Sunday Sunday streets. Streets. Okay. I'm going to go read them that book and then we're going to make a little parklet in there. You're going to make a parklet? School's parking lot. Oh, that's It probably won't last until the rest of the parents come because that seems really dangerous. But. (laughs) Oh, wow. That is such a great idea. Yeah, that's fun. So my favorite book is or my favorite children's book, is also a real estate story. Nice. It's called The Little House. Uh-huh. You know that one, uh-huh. right? Yeah, yeah. Every time I think of the, every time we go to Austin, we pass the uh, Broken Spoke, the dance hall. Uh-huh. It's on South Lamar. It's probably from the 1950s. Uh, and it has it is encompassed by new <laughs> apartment buildings. It's not quite, they don't overtop it. Like there's not an overhang over them, but that's like sort of the only step left mm-hmm. is for them to actually build like balconies over to the To purchase the airspace yes, and exactly. build in it. And that's yeah. all I can think of anytime I think of Little House. Wow, we should do like a top 10 list of children's books or real estate books disguised as children's mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. Next Loopies. Yeah. That wasn't on this one, but we'll, we'll start collecting. There's a really great book that this is, a little tangential, but it's called Bulldozer, and it's a cultural history of bulldozers. And there's an entire section that's all about bulldozers in in mass media and oh. in children's books. And it's basically it's a corollary for 
American growth and yeah. and development and all of the children's book depictions of bulldozers are like, here we go. Yeah. Um, but then eventually they become, they transform into a a environmental movement menace. And <laughs> you can kind of track track the feelings about development and growth in America through the depictions of bulldozers and in, in, in so kids' cool. books. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you one more lightning question, and this is. I mean, this will say a lot about you one way or another. So just know that this the stakes is gonna are be, high. Okay. This is going to be out there. Favorite reality show? <laughs> I just have to actually think. I don't watch a lot of reality shows. The The most recent show I've been watching that is, I, I don't even know if it qualifies as a reality show, is it's called Grand Designs. And it's a really hilarious British show about people making probably ill-advised choices on building their own homes. So there's like a really, oh. really kind of haughty British host who uh-huh. kind of comes in and they're like, oh, you're really, you're going to build that. And your budget's what? And you think <laughs> it's going to be that? Okay. And then they just let that whole process unfold. So I don't actually oh. know if it qualifies as a reality show because it's definitely not. I think we should watch that tonight. <laughs> okay. okay there are yeah. some that are pretty enjoyable and it also gets absurd, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like yeah. a wonderful show. Yeah. Okay. The first one I started with was a person who bought in medieval, no, not medieval. Like 1800s water tower in downtown London, and I believe spent something like three million dollars. So it's not like of the people. Let's be clear. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a they. Then you get to watch the process of turning an old uh, water tower into a multi-million dollar home. It's pretty pretty interesting. That's great. All right. Well, thank you again. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Thank you too. Thanks for having me, listeners. Until next time, please subscribe to Looped In on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please write a review or rate us because it helps us grow, they say. You can check out more about our podcast and others at HoustonChronicle.com slash podcasts. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. <laughs>